Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in June of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Alexandra W. Lau. Dr. Lau earned her PhD from Brandeis University in American History, specializing in cultural, political, and social movements. Her dissertation was titled The Last Tax, Henry George and the Social Politics of Land Reform. Dr. Lau is the former director of the Henry George Birthplace Archive and Historical Center. She is the author of The Annotated Works of Henry George, a commentary on George's seminal works, social problems, and the condition of labor. Dr. Loud joined the Henry George School to discuss the life led by Henry George, how other economists responded to George's ideas, and how local decision makers implemented Georgist ideas into their policy. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Alexandra, welcome to Smart Talk. Hi, hi, Alexandra. Anyway, this is going to be a great interview because you are the young representatives of the Georgist movement. I think if we could cap you with Gaffney and you at the, at the young end, we'd have something. But anyway, I want to discuss your work both at the archives and your PhD work, especially about Henry George, because Henry George is the most famous economist that nobody has ever heard about. And that's un unfortunate. But you did, did a PhD thesis that's rich in detail with uh, Henry George's life. And so <clears throat> I'd first like you to tell the audience, what was it that Henry George's early life did to compel him to write his masterpiece, Progress and Poverty? And then we, we go through that, we'll travel on. But why did he, a man who had no education for all practical purposes, who was self-taught, who was itinerant, who, who bounced around from, for, as, as a printer and a, and, a, and a correspondent, able to manage such a, such a magisterial and influential piece, in your opinion? Well, um, I think he had an adventurous spirit, and I think he showed that from a very young age. Um, you know, like you said, he didn't have um, a formal education, at least not in the way we think of it. He... He actually, I think he announced to his family at age 13, he said, I'm going to quit schooling so that I can go out and see the world. And that's essentially what he did. You know, at age 16, he traveled around the world as a ship hand. And when he was 18, he decided he was going to go west in search of gold, like so many other young um, men of his generation. And um, even though he didn't have book schooling in the, in the same way that, you know, most famous economists do today, he had real-world experience, and he was an acute observer of what he saw. And I think that's why progress and po poverty was was wide, um, widely read at the time, was that it was easily understood. It was based on his own observations about the world in which he was living. And I really think that's why it was compelling. He was familiar with the current economists of his day. Apparently, he caught up with the reading because in many ways his land formulation is, uh, is out of Ricardo uh, to a certain extent. He elaborated on it, of course. And he was familiar with the wages fund controversy and uh, John Stuart Mill. So 
he had a working knowledge of the economists of his day. So he taught himself enough to get to that threshold. But when he went to California, it seems there, and correct me if I'm wrong, the observation of land prices and speculation is what really galvanized his mind to put a theory together. Would that be correct? Uh, absolutely. I mean, and that's exactly what he said. He was, he had these sort of a few aha moments, if you will. And one of them came when he was just riding his horse in the Oakland foothills and he stopped and he thought, huh, I wonder how much land is worth here. And the price that it was worth at that time shocked him. And he said, that this must be it. This is why uh, wages tend to a minimum despite um, the advance of progress and the advance of prosperity. And understand too, he's living and working in California in the post gold rush era, in the post transcontinental railroad era, all things that increased um, the price of land and made land more valuable and more, um, you know, increased demand for it. So the price would go up. Well, but of course, the book itself is logically impeccable if you read it. I mean, he covered all the bases and there was really no argument. He wrote an earlier work, the name was? Our Land and Land Policy. He really didn't uh, really market the first work. Um, he decided it wasn't finished, even though the basic idea, the basic theories he laid out in that first work, Our Land and Land Policy, are the same that are that is in Progress and Poverty. Progress and Poverty did take off, and I don't believe he had a publish. He self-published that book, correct? No, not quite. He um, paid for and set the, 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 the printing type for the author's edition in San Francisco, and then the following year he took it to New York, and he was able to find a publisher there a year later. So the, the author's edition came out in 1879. The actual um, published edition came out in 1880. How did it get traction? Who promoted it? He didn't have the money to do that. You know, um, actually, it took a while before it was even reviewed in the press. Um, I think what really gave it traction was his visit to uh, England and Ireland in 1881 and 1882. And it's there when the, a London publisher picked it up and started selling it that it really took off. And when he came back to the United States, um, it started um, very rapidly. At the end, how many copies did you, would you estimate that he sold of that book in his lifetime? You know, I've seen lots of different numbers, um, and I'm not sure there's any way we can know for sure. My favorite quote about how many copies it sold is just the quote that says, it likely outsold every other book in the 19th century except the Bible. And I think that's all we need. <laughs> now, let's take a look at the influence that that had in, uh, let's say, the legislative uh, area. Where was the first impact that you detected on of George's work starting to affect policy? Uh, definitely at the local level. I would say it's with some of the reform mayors who started picking up his ideas and, um, and their efforts to sort of um, capture land values within the city itself and then redistribute that um, through public works and infrastructure. So men like Tom Johnson, mayor of Cleveland, um, Golden Rule um, Jones, mayor of Toledo, they actually tried to, they're influenced by his ideas, and they start an effort to basically um, take over transportation, water delivery, you know, all these municipal monopolies 
And the reason why those are so valuable is because of the land values um, that they operate on. So I think it's really at the local level that you first see George's ideas having an immediate impact. Did he did take uh, Tom Johnson, who's probably the most famous of the Georgia's mayors, uh, is there any record of the kind of revenues he was able to raise out of land value taxation or, or, or streetcar valuations or any of the subsets of that? Is Did he run the Cleveland budget with that, or do you have any uh, information on the revenues and what he accomplished with that? You know, there are some records. Well, I'll say that he was never actually able to implement any kind of land value taxation in Cleveland, mostly because that would have create that would have required um, a state level uh, change into the Constitution. And um, there were a number of single taxers, people who were inspired by George's ideas, who did try to change the state constitution. Um, so yes, absolutely, there are records available. I don't know the numbers offhand, um, mostly because he faced lots of opposition um, to just sort of vested interests in the city in really enacting and, and acting upon George's ideas. But his entire uh, municipal program, his entire um, government was based and was inspired by George's ideas. All right. If we jump to the particular, to a... Uh more of a national look. Uh, let's go to England at the time of Winston Churchill, 1906. There was a, a phenomenal debate about going to a land uh, uh, value taxation system for all of England. And perhaps you could elaborate, because that's probably the, the greatest, the closest attempt that we have on record of, of uh, a country trying to attempt it. And maybe you can give us some background as to why in England and how far did they get? And then, of course, you could tell us what happened. Okay. Yeah, well, they got, they got a great deal farther than we did in the United States. Um, I think you're referring to the People's Budget, which was of 1909, um, and it was actually sponsored by David Lloyd George. And um, essentially what it was trying to do was increase the tax on um, land, specifically land that had been undeveloped in England. Eventually it was passed. Unfortunately, before any it really got momentum, um, World War One happened, and it kind of delayed yes, things yeah. there. Uh, and I think there are several quotes in which he essentially says he he fought, he believes in the ideas of Henry George. But you have to understand, in England, there were there were several other people who came before Henry George that had similar ideas, right? You know, even John Stuart Mill was one of them. So. Um, although Henry George was extremely popular in, in England, they had a longer tradition of calls for, um, you know, land value taxation and re basically returning the land to the people is what they would say. Now, Henry George also intersected with the Marxists at, at a number of points. Uh, and those debates are quite interesting. What, what do you have to say about that intersection? Sure. I actually argue in my dissertation that it was George's visits to um, to England and the publication of Progress and Poverty in England that really jump-started the modern British socialist movement. I think had George not come at a time that he did come, there wouldn't have been that, um, that big push and the popular interest in the ideas of Marx, but also just in general socialism. Um, the Fabians, the Fabian socialists were were heavily influenced by George. Um, the Christian socialists in, in Britain were heavily influenced by George. So 
it really was good timing and then just the mass appeal of George's ideas that um, increased and the demand for a kind of um, socialist, popular socialist movement in England. Well, Marx, of course, said that George was the last gasp of the bourgeoisie. Uh, I don't know if George ever responded to that or even knew that, what he, that Marx had said that. I'm trying to remember exactly when um, Marx was translated into English. You know, it was close to the end of George's life. Um, but, you know, George faced criticism from, from the far left, from socialists who felt that he, they were first very excited by him. Here's, here's a guy coming and saying the land shouldn't belong to anybody. It should belong to the people. Um, but then he would stop. He stopped short of saying that, well, so should capital and the factors of production. Of course, Marx also, I think, in the um, Communist Manifesto, called for the nationalization of land anyway. Oh, yeah. I think he supported that, and so did socialists. But they, you know, George didn't support the nationalization of capital. He, in that sense, was, you know, still a capitalist, I guess, in so to speak. He really wanted the reform of capitalism, not the um, abolition of it. He did have a great debate, I think, in England at that time with a famous socialist. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was the, the whole debate was actually published in the 19th century uh, magazine, I believe. Um, but it basically just laid out how the positions of the socialists and how the positions of the single taxers um, were different. And so, and, and that... That really did hasten the split, which was which was too bad, um, because there was a lot of common ground between the socialists in England and the single taxers. But it was really that public debate that said, look, the single taxers and Henry George do not support the nationalization of capital. They support the nationalization of land, and here's what they think is the best way to do it. Um, and that was one of the other big differences between socialists and um, the single taxers is Henry George didn't want to confiscate land, right? He wanted to tax it. He wanted to tax basically the benefits of, of owning it privately out of existence. Now, if we go back to the United States, Henry George was able to gain a cumulative uh, traction to the point where he ran for the mayor of New York. How was that possible in the, going back and forth and in a, in a wild west economy much different than England's, he was able to get such support that in, in, in the heartland of capitalism and uh, landlordism, he, he, he was enticed to run for, for, for mayor, and he nearly won. Any comments on that? Yeah, sure. So his first, he ran for mayor twice. Um, the first time was in 1886, and um, his nomination for the, um, the candidate for mayor for the Central Labor Union of New York really comes at the end of this, what, what historians like to call the year of labor, right? 1886, you have the Haymarket um, riots, you just have labor protests and labor strikes in every major city around the country. Now, of course, by that time, progress and poverty was very popular and it was being read by the working men. And I think the really interesting thing about Henry George was you, here's a guy who's talking about land and he's talking about land reform and yet his uh, most intense following is in the city right in major cities in urban areas and that's because that's where um, land values and the increase of what we like to call economic rent is 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 most felt is most acutely felt 
And so he really spoke to the workers and a lot of them are immigrants. A lot of them are Irish immigrants. He was very famous in Ireland because of his advocation of the nationalization of land. So they all were able to get behind Henry George. And of course, um, he had a, a couple big names on, on his campaign that were supporting him. Father McGlynn, who is the most popular priest, um, especially in the working class districts of New York, he supports Henry George. And so he gets this other huge following of, of, of workers and, and, and some middle class people as well following him. So the entire race, the New York City race in 1886 was fascinating. And um, Henry George started out as a dark horse candidate and ended up very, you know, narrowly, you know, losing. And there's a lot of speculation that there was fraud. Abram Hewitt, he ended up winning the race. And there's a lot of speculation that um, it was fraudulent, right? That the, the votes were stacked. There was voter fraud on behalf of which, you know, the Tammany Hall Democratic machine, you know, goes back many decades before 1886. They have a sort of history of, of fixing elections in, in favor of their candidate. And there's no there's no reason to assume they didn't do the same thing in that race. Of course, who finished third in that race? I don't think I think you could surprise everyone with that. Yeah, good old Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> he finished third, distant third. <laughs> So if we come off a little of the history, uh, eventually, I think two things occurred uh, post the, the, the election. I think economics uh, caught up with Henry George and uh, the old classical economics that had three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. About that time, of course, that's the time of the marginal revolution also, which was independent of that. But in America, it seems that the economists decided that it was much easier to combine land and capital as one factor of production of capital and leave labor as the other, and in effect, um, marginalized uh, Henry George from a formal economics point of view. Your comments on that? Um, yeah, I, I think there was a definite concerted effort on behalf of the sort of professional economists to to write Henry George out of out of economic you know history, um, and that's one way that they did it. Um, they never really accepted a Henry George or his theories as um, you know reputable, and you know you'll have to really talk to Mason Gaffney about whether this was. Conspiracy or not, I think you know there's a, there's there's a lot of reason to believe that this was a conspiracy in order for the professional economists to kind of um, save their reputation, so to speak, right? Save their save their jobs, right? Because otherwise, if Henry George was right, then what is the point of studying economics at the college level? What is the point of getting a PhD in economics? Um, anybody, any any Joe off the street can and can become an economic theorist. That's really what Henry George was trying to prove. And that, that really scared the professional economists who also at that time in the 1880s, 1890s, um, were all returning from Europe. Uh, George, in, a, in effect, was marginalized, and yet there was pressure on unequal distribution of wealth. So eventually there was a progressive income tax enacted in the United States, I think, around 9-11. Uh, 1911. What would you say that the George's influence on the progressive income tax was? Because my understanding is that a lot of the people who went for the progressive income tax said, look, 
we're covering Georgia's problem in this income tax, because the only people who've got this kind of money are the big landowners who are going to feel the tax. Therefore, rather than go and tamper with the laws of property, we can catch this with a popular income tax at the high end. Would I have it right or close to right, or if not, correct yeah. me? Yeah, I would just add some details there. Um, so there's absolutely um, a, a continuity from Henry George's ideas to the progressive income tax at the time that it was passed. Um, some felt this was, you know, going against everything that Henry George stood for. Some thought, well, this is a step in the right direction, right? And it was, it was actually kind of both. Um, the one thing that would be very difficult about passing a land value tax in the United States is dependent on, at the national level, is how you interpret um, that type of tax. Is it a direct tax or is it an indirect tax? Because the Constitution says if it is a direct tax, it has to be apportioned among the states, right? Which would kind of render it, it, would render it useless. Um, so, you know, there was that issue. But the real compromise and why a lot of single taxers, a lot of the people who supported George actually ended up supporting the progressive income tax was because it was linked with a reduction in the tariff, protective tariff. And remember, Henry George was also an, ad, you know, an avid free trader, right? And he hated this idea of, of protective tariffs, um, which at the time was the, the biggest source of revenue um, of the federal government. We jump to modern times, you know, we're, there are still Georgists around, and uh, I consider myself a, a, a kind of a neo-Georgist because in addition to land monopoly, uh, there are other forms of monopoly that I like to see taxed too. So it wouldn't be a pure Georgist view, but I think Henry George's view of taxing monopoly, where it primarily exists, is fundamentally correct and would relieve a lot of stresses in society if, if, if uh, uh, that were done. But if we had to hazard a guess on uh, how much revenue a land tax would bring in the United States today, are there any studies, has there been any work to establish what that number might be? And forget about how difficult it might be to collect it or assess it, but from a gross economic point of view, that you can estimate labor and you can estimate return to capital. Can you estimate uh, what the rents would be from just land nationally? And has anyone attempted to do that? Because that would be persuasive one way or the other. Right. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a professional economist, um, but I don't see why it would be very difficult. I mean, Land, everybody knows how much their house is worth, right? So all you would have to do is separate, you know, the value of buildings from the value of land. And I think all kind of property taxation um, estimates that value anyway. So um, I'm not sure why it, it theoretically shouldn't be that difficult. I think it's just it gets into politics. There's an interest for the, the landowners to make sure for taxation purposes, their, the value of their land is undervalued. And I think that's always been the big problem is, is coming up with a very non-political independent way to assess the value of land um, free from any kind of political or special interest. And so I don't think the issue is, um, it, it's, it's not an, a theoretical problem or an economic problem, it's a political problem um, to be able to, to estimate 
um, land value in this country and for taxation purposes. Um, I, I have no doubt it can be done, and I'm sure there are people out there who are doing it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, just just from a, uh, my own experience, uh, a number of people have made different attempts at it on the on the national level, and I know Gaffney has. We have here uh, a number of studies have have kind of converged to the. Uh, the rent that's derivable from land and resources could approach 30% in a, in, a, in a generous reading of it, and certainly not less than 20. And if it falls within that range, it essentially covers the tax bill from all sources of the United States today. So, but, but if you read the GNP accounts, the GNP accounts will only show you rent as 2 or 3% of the GNP. So you have to dig that out from many other accounts with, with assumptions and, and arguments to show that what's been conflated or, or, or packed into other accounts is really uh, true land value and, and the rents that can be derived from that. So, so I'm persuaded personally, and in fact we're building, we're building the model to kind of prove that, which will go to the Henry George Archive Center, which I want you to talk about uh, anyway, where we can have an interactive model and see if there's that kind of rent available. Of course, it's a political question, as you pointed out. Knowing that doesn't get you anywhere. But just for the record, it would be an interesting study. But let's segue to you're the keeper and the director of the Archive Center. So why don't we just ask you, what's in the archives as you've developed them, and what might come later into that same project? Right. So uh, currently at the Henry George Birthplace Archive and Historical Research Center, um, we have the birthplace of, of Henry George, America's greatest economist, right? Um, it's a fabulous historic building. It's the only surviving residence uh, connected to, with Henry George. Um, Henry George obviously lived many different places. He died in New York, um, but none of the places he lived um, um, currently stand. So the, the birthplace in Philadelphia is the only surviving residence of Henry George. So part of our efforts is just to continue to preserve um, that historic space. Um, as far as an archive, we have lots of great material. We have correspondence from Henry George to um, his family members. We have a letter from... President Woodrow Wilson to Henry George Jr., George's first uh, firstborn son. We have um, the bed in which Henry George was reportedly born. We have the desk uh, upon which he wrote Progress and Poverty. So we have many um, actual physical you know, furniture and items that belong to Henry George or his family, in addition to lots of, of letters writings, uh, pictures, everything connected to Henry George and the Henry George movement. Um, now it's my, my, my hope that as we develop um, that more institutions, more organizations and individuals who are connected with the Henry George movement, um, the movement for land value taxation would be willing to donate their papers and their work to our center so that um, we can continue to um, have attract visitors, people who want to do academic research, people who are just interested in the ideas of Henry George, they can come to our center and, uh, and have access to a wide range of historical 
uh, material about land value taxation. Now we're going to end this. So, Alexander, it was great speaking with you. I'll see you soon. And we'll no doubt do this again. Great. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.